Welcome to the Theology in Practice podcast, a podcast that takes theology and applies it to the everyday Christian life. Welcome back to the Theology in Practice podcast. We're continuing our study in the Gospel of John, and this week we're finishing the prologue to John's Gospel, where he asserts that the Word is Jesus in the flesh. Specifically, we're looking at verses 14 through 18 of chapter 1. The big idea here is that John is going to close his prologue with the assertion that Jesus, the Word, has become flesh. The coming of the person of Christ is what the entire Old Testament has pointed to, and John is stating that the fulfillment of all the Old Testament is to be seen in light of Jesus. While Moses brought grace through the law, Jesus is the fullness of grace through his restoration of those who trust in his name. What John started when he began his gospel, he now concludes with the revealing of the person of Jesus as the Word. When John states that the Word has become flesh and dwelt among us, he is presenting a challenge to the dualistic worldview that was prominent in his day. The separation of the spiritual and the physical would have had a common consensus in John's day, and John intersecting the two would have been considered controversial to most of his readers. John uses the word tabernacled when he says that the word dwelt with us. For John's Jewish readers, this would have connected the festival of booths or the feast of Sukkot, and this is a serious connection to the historical Jewish faith. The fact that John connects Jesus with the festival of booths would have been a significant development for his Jewish readers. The question at hand centers around why it is necessary that Christ take on flesh. If Christ did not take on flesh, then three specific aspects of his humanity would not have been fulfilled. Let's take a look at each one of these. If Christ had not taken on flesh, then he could not be tempted. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. If Jesus was only a type of divine being that appeared to have flesh but did not have actual flesh, then the temptation of Jesus recorded in the Gospels would have not been a real temptation. Because Jesus took on flesh, he went through every temptation that we face in our flesh. Hebrews 4.15 tells us this much. Next, if Christ had not taken on flesh, then he could not be our standard. Because Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Christ went through every temptation and was without sin, he stands as the ultimate example for all Christians. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Christ had to become sin for us in order to become the atonement for sinners. Christ, then, is our example in every aspect of life. Thirdly, if Christ had not taken on flesh, he could not be the atonement for sins. If he is not the standard, as stated above in 2 Corinthians 5.21, then he cannot be the perfect sacrifice for sin. We must remember that the cross started in Bethlehem. Theologian J.I. Packer summed this up very well. Packer writes, The crucial significance of the cradle at Bethlehem lies in its place in the sequence of steps down that led the Son of God to the cross of Calvary, and we do not understand it until we see it in this context. The key text in the New Testament for interpreting the Incarnation is not, therefore, the bare statement of John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
but rather the more comprehensive statement of 2 Corinthians 8-9. Ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might become rich. Here is stated the fact of not the incarnation only, but also its meaning. The taking of manhood by the Son is set before us in a way which shows us how we should set it before ourselves and ever view it, not simply as a marvel of nature, but rather as a wonder of grace. That's J.I. Packer in the book Knowing God. In Colossians 1, 15-19, we read about the preeminence of Christ over all creation. Paul tells the church at Colossae that in Christ all things hold together, and that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What was shadowed in the Old Testament came to its fullness in the person of Jesus Christ and is explained in the New Testament. The fullness of Christ can be seen in five specific areas from the Old Testament. Let's look at each one. First, we have Jesus and the tabernacle. This is from the first half of verse 14. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was a place where the presence of God dwelt with the people. When they were a nomadic people, the Levites were the tribe that was tasked with all things related to the temple and tabernacle. Not all Levites were priests, but all priests were Levites. God met man through the tabernacle in the Old Testament and in the person of Jesus in the New Testament. This is why John's reference to the tabernacle is so important to his Jewish readers. One of the feasts of the Lord described in Leviticus 23 is the Feast of Sukkot or the Feast of Booths. During this feast, Jewish people would live outside of their homes in makeshift booths that reminded them of when they did not have a land of their own. So when John says that the Word, Jesus, took on flesh and dwelt, which is literally tabernacled, with mankind, he is saying that Jesus is the fullness of the tabernacle as described in the Old Testament. Next, let's look at Jesus and the glory of God. The glory of God is how we can visibly see the effects of his work in the world. Theologian Wayne Grudem says that the glory of God is the visible manifestation of the excellence of God's character. That's from his Systematic Theology, page 221. When Old Testament Jews looked at the tabernacle, when Old Testament Jews looked at the tabernacle then, they were seeing a partial fulfillment of the glory of God. There is also story after story of God showing his presence and glory through visible manifestations in the Old Testament. God passed by Moses in the cleft of the rock and covered him so that he could only see the back of his glory. God led the people of Israel through the wilderness with a pillar of fire and a cloud. There are many more stories, but all of these supernatural occurrences are only a foreshadowing of the fullness that would be revealed through the person of Jesus Christ. John says that Jesus is the glory of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Next, let's look at Jesus and the prophets. Even though John the Baptist was born before Jesus, he clearly points to Christ as the greater prophet. John records John the Baptist saying that he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. In the Old Testament, a prophet was the mouthpiece of God to speak God's oracles to his people. In a way, they were all preparing the way for the Lord. John the Baptist was given the distinct privilege of being the one who would tell the world, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There was a 400-year gap of silence between Malachi and John the Baptist. Surely after 400 years, the people of Israel were beginning to lose hope that God would send his Messiah. 
Then John the Baptist comes from the wilderness saying that he is preparing the way and introduces Jesus as the Lamb of God and the fullness of the Old Testament prophets. Jesus is the final prophet as he occupies all three offices of prophet, priest, and king. Next, let's look at Jesus and the law. John introduces Jesus' relation to the law by using the term grace upon grace. This could be better understood as grace following grace or as endless grace. When Moses delivered the law, it was considered a grace from God. D.A. Carson says this very well when he writes, The covenant of the law then is seen as a gracious gift from God, now replaced by a further gracious gift, the gift of grace and truth, embodied in Jesus Christ. Here named for the first time as the human being who is none other than the Word made flesh. The law through Moses is a gracious gift from God and should be seen as such. But the fullness of the law is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said this much himself in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's Matthew 5, 17. Finally, let's look at Jesus and the Father. Much like the glory of God, Jesus is the fullness of the revelation of God the Father. Verse 18 provides a unique picture of the divinity of Christ once again. Referring to Jesus, John uses the words monogenes huias, which means one and only son. In that same verse, he also says monogenes theos, which means one and only God. What John is implying here with this wording is that the one and only Son is also the one and only God. Later in John, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. That's John chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus in the flesh is the fullness of the gospel message that was planned from eternity past by the Father. There are three key relations we can pick up about the gospel story and how it relates to the incarnation of Jesus. These three things are the gospel story is a rescue story, and Jesus is the rescuer. The gospel story is a promise, and Jesus is the fulfillment. The gospel story is all about Jesus Christ and the grace that he has made available to all. Jesus has come to display God in the flesh. Jesus has come to fulfill the work that we are unable to fulfill on our own. Jesus had full face-to-face access in the Trinity, and humbled himself to take on flesh so that the gospel story could be fully told and sinners could be given an opportunity to believe in his name. And that is what John teaches us in the conclusion of his prologue. Thank you for joining the Theology in Practice podcast. Our prayer is that this podcast will help you learn biblical truths and apply those biblical truths to your daily life. 